by um, what he is revealing in his word. And uh, we are now at 1 Samuel chapter 14, but uh, we're going to pick up the reading in 1 Samuel 13, and um, we're going to take it from there, beginning at verse 19. Rebecca's going to come and lead us uh, in reading the word, so let's stand together as the word of God is read, and uh, we will get into the preaching of the word after that. Okay. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabog's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priests of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes, passes which by Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. <clears throat> if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men with, within, as it were, half a furrow length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. 
And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the torment in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth Aven. Lord, we thank you for the word of God read this morning, and Lord, how it, it prepares us for the food that you want to feed us with. We ask, Lord, that we would be humble, that we'd be teachable, Lord, and also that we would be thinking people this morning as we, uh, Lord, just allow your word to, to, um, to settle in our hearts, and that, Lord, that we can see uh, the, the, the focus, Lord, for what you are um, desiring to do in us. We ask, Lord, that in our time in 1 Samuel that we would not necessarily get, get caught up with uh, just looking at, at men, but Lord, ultimately we would see that behind all of these examples and all of these characters, Lord, there is a sovereign God, that's you, who is working out your will and your plan uh, to accomplish your purposes. And Lord, uh, we wanna be a part of that. We wanna, Lord, find out how we can continue, Lord, to be um, actively supporting and promoting and being fashioned and shaped, Lord, to be doing your work for your glory. So strengthen us now, Lord. Allow me to be your messenger to faithfully open up your word and to press it home. But Lord, ultimately that you would be glorified, we ask in your name. Amen. There is a, uh, a story that I think a number of you have heard me tell a number of times. I've probably used it in a sermon on different occasions, but uh, it's important, I think, at this point in time to, to bring it up uh, as a, a means by which to introduce this text. It is the, the story of the very famous battle that took place in Agincourt, which is a little village in France. And this was a battle during the Hundred Years' War, um, and it was a battle between the French and the English. The English um, had an army of about 6,000 or so, um, some suggest it was even less than that, and they were tired, um, they were weary, they had been marching all day, and they are hungry, and they're trying to quickly get up to Calais and beat the French army up there so that they could be safe. And in their desire to get to Calais, um, it had been raining and raining and raining, they say for two weeks, and uh, the French army actually was able to cut them off and ultimately resulted in a battle. Now what's interesting about this particular battle is that there were, um, they say, anywhere between 25,000 to 36,000 French uh, soldiers. And that would be uh, men at arms, that would be uh, knights on horses, and uh, 
uh, verses between 5,600 and 6,000 uh, English men-at-arms and some archers also. So the numbers were pretty well stacked for the French. Um, and the French apparently, as the story goes, the night before the battle was going to take place, um, were celebrating and talking about how they were going to rout the English and actually built a cart in preparation for um, carrying the king of England as a, as a, as a captive. This is victory kind of celebration. Whereas in the British camp, or the English camp, I should say, they were somber, anticipating this battle where many of them were going to die the next day. Well, as the French uh, got themselves ready for battle, um, they were somewhat more on the, on the top of a, of a hill looking down. The British were down toward the bottom of the hill, but in a very narrow place. And one of the things that happened was because it had rained so much on this field in particular, where these men-at-arms were then going to go marching, the French came down into, the, into the, this battle arena, so weighted down with their armor that the ground turned into mud. And this was a field that, was, that had been rained on, but also had been plowed. So you can see the softness of the dirt and all that kind of stuff. And so the French came down, but the English had chosen this place that was somewhat narrow. So the English took all their forces and, and covered from side to side. And then, of course, there was woods on either side of them. And when the French came down, they were funneled. And they were funneled so much that they could not, they could not get around the English. And they went up to the English, and the English just started to beat them down. If nothing else, they beat them down so that they would suffocate in the mud or drown in the mud, and then you had this press of French behind them. Not only that, the British were known for their archers. And as soon as these men-at-arms would come, and they were coming, with, again, with all this armor. I don't know if you've ever worn armor. I haven't, but I've just seen you know, movies of it, and it's just like really, really heavy stuff. And add mud to that, and they say the mud was at least knee-high. Kind of try, try and imagine walking like that. Now, if you were an archer... That's easy pickings. And so the English just started to fire down these arrows at these, these French soldiers, and uh, many were, were captured in, uh, on that day. But ultimately, just to make a long story short, the English routed the French. Under 6,000 against over 30,000, the odds were against them. But they ended up winning the battle that day, and there are some reasons why um, they won the battle. I'm not going to put them up there for you, but let me just suggest some things. There was um, arrogance. You know, the French just looked at their numbers, and looked at the English numbers, and said, we're going to win this one. I mean, we're just, you know, just going to go out there, and we're going to obliterate um, the, the, the English. There was also insubordination. The king of France um, was kind of uh, not, too, um, not too good in his mind, apparently. And uh, the result of that is he allowed uh, his uh, two, two, two leaders of the armies to take control. Well, the French nobility who got together to form this army, if they weren't going to be under the king, they certainly weren't going to be under one of the king's advisors. And so there was no order to the actual battle. So when the, the leaders of the French army said, no, don't go, the nobleman said, we're fighting here for France, we're fighting for our honor, we're gonna go down there, we're gonna take care of these Englishmen. Well, there, wasn't this, there was insubordination going on which resulted in a lack of, of, of cohesiveness in the battle. The weather, of course, played into this greatly, as we talked about, as well as the heavy French armor. The French armor was superior to the British armor. It was more expensive than the British armor. 
um, and yet it became a detriment to, um, to the French. And then finally, the English longbow was really what, what uh, um, changed the, really the, the face of Europe um, as far as battles were concerned. And, and the point here I want you just to, to notice with the Battle of Agincourt is just how, how uh, insurmountable the odds were for the English at that point in time in this battle. Now as we come to our text here today, just to bring context to what's going on, we find Israel in much the same circumstance. In chapter 13, we read that the, the Philistines, because of what Jonathan had done in going quickly into a garrison and, and killing some people, um, had, had kind of raised up in number. And we found over 36,000 Philistines, and that's just the ones that are counted. Then it says there's the, they're, they're like the sands of the sea. So there's this huge army of the Philistines now coming into the territory where the Hebrews were. And this, this, this stronghold of Michmash um, where, the, um, uh, where, the, where Saul was holding up with, with his army of, of 3,000 men was now taken over by the Philistines. Much of that army had disappeared with everyone else going to the hills and the, 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 the holes and the caves and the cisterns and he's left with 600 soldiers against 36,000 and then some. Those are insurmountable odds. It isn't looking good for the Hebrew people. It certainly isn't looking good for Saul. And so in this circumstance, under these kind of situations, we, we, are, we are looking for God to say, here's what I'm going to do for my people. And so as we study this incredible story in 1 Samuel 14, we see in Jonathan, a young man with great faith in God. And I wanna draw your attention to verse six. This is the heart of this section. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, talking there about the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And we're gonna unpack that in a little bit. But as we go into this story, here is the ultimate message. Here is the, the main idea. Here is the emphasis that is flowing out for us. God is looking for men and women who are willing to exercise great faith in the face of great opposition. Now, circumstances will not always be the same, but life is full of great opposition. It comes in many forms. It can come with health, it can come with uh, you know, losing a job, it can come with financial struggles, it can come with relational issues that are happening. There, are, there is gonna be opposition in life. Sometimes it can be movements of society talking about the church or Christians relating to those movements. And in all those situations, God is looking for men and women who are his children who are willing to exercise great faith in the context or the face of great opposition. Now just quickly again to set the stage, 1 Samuel is a book that is showing us how God is raising up a king. He's bringing us to the place to see us, see the, the way in which he's doing that. And so as, as Joshua, the book of uh, Judges ended, um, everyone did that was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. Now we're gonna see that God is raising up a king. He raises up Samuel, first of all, to be their prophet, the priest, and also ultimately their deliverer. 
And then Samuel, in his final speech, transitions over his role and responsibility for Israel to Saul, the people's choice, and that's where we find it right now. Saul has been disobedient, chapter 13. He has lost his right um, to, to have his line carry on the, the kingship of Israel, and uh, now we find them in great disarray, in great trouble, and God is the one that's only going to be the one to deliver them. All right, so all that takes us then to what I'm going to begin by saying, a contrasted faith. Many times in Old Testament narrative, you have two characters that are contrasted, and we're going to have a contrast of two characters. One here happens to be the father, and the other one happens to be the son. And let's pick it up now at verse 1. One day, that's as far as we need to go right now, One day, what day? Literally in the Hebrew it says, and the day came. Well, what day came? Well, if you go back to chapter 13 and look at verse 22, uh, maybe back when you were reading chapter 13, it didn't quite make any sense, but it says, so on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan and his son had them. This is the day of the battle that's being talked about. This is the day when the Israelites now are, in a sense, taking on the Philistines, and there's only two people that have any weapons, swords, Saul and Jonathan, all right? That's the context, that's the setting here of this this importance now of saying, all right, on one day, and here's what happens on this one day. We're gonna focus now on Jonathan and his armor bearer. Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go to the over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now our first reaction, just looking at the context and the story and the picture of what's going on here, it's like, what are you talking about, Jonathan? There's like 36,000 Philistines running around and they're held up now in Michmash and you you wanna go up there and take on the Philistines? What kind of a crazy nut job are you? In other words, what do you think you're doing? It's an absolutely ridiculous idea. Or maybe, Jonathan, you must be mad. Do you really want to die this fast? Do you really want it to end now? And clearly, it was not the kind of plan you'd go home and tell your father about, right? And there are many things that teenage sons do that you should not come home and tell your father about, all right? But it really was a preposterous plan. It was a foolhardy plan, it was an audacious plan, but verse one begins to tell us about the character of Jonathan, and it's just a tease there to begin this comparison, a tease to let us know that Jonathan is about to do something, that he has a plan in motion. When it came to facing the enemy, when God had commanded um, that he do that, Jonathan is eager, He's daring, and he's adventurous. Look at chapter 13 and verse three. Chapter 13, verse three says, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Again, we find Jonathan on his own taking on the Philistines, all right? There's something just incredible about the character of this young man. So Jonathan is daringly ready to take it to the Philistines again. If he could do it in Geba, why could he not do it now, and the story will develop, but the narrator jumps now to show 
what Saul is doing. So we move from Jonathan and the armor bearer to Saul, and I'm calling the ephod wearer. Okay, Saul and the ephod wearer. Look, if you would please, at verse two. What was Saul doing while Jonathan was concocting his plan? It says in verse two, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Saul was retreating. He wasn't like just living in, what does it say, Gibeah. He was in the outskirts of Gibeah, in a cave under a pomegranate tree. He was hiding out. That's what he was doing. Unlike Jonathan, who's looking to move against the Philistines, Saul is retreating into the hills further and further away from the Philistines. Not only that, but the narrator gives us some information now that really paints a picture of where Saul is in his, you might even say, spiritual journey because he is rejected. It says, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now, as you read verse three, there should be shivers going up and down your spine. There are names, there are people that are mentioned there that you have realized, and if you remember from 1 Samuel, are not good characters. So much so that the line of Eli was cut off, was cursed. And here is Saul. And Saul um, is one who has been himself rejected by God through Samuel, chapter 13, verses 13 through 15. And there Samuel basically confronts Saul for his disobedience in the offering of the incense rather than waiting for Samuel to show up. And the result of that is your line is not going to continue. That kingly line will not take place. But then we have this man, Ahijah of the line of Ichabod and Eli. So when Samuel left, what does Saul do? He brings into his inner circle another priest by the name of Ahijah, just file Ahijah away. He doesn't play too much in the context of this story, but he will show up again. And he is a significant character as we think through how things kind of weave and come together in the story of 1 Samuel. But for now, he's simply a spiritual advisor to Saul, one who is from the line that God had said is rejected. His uncle is Ichabod, remember? That means where's the glory? Or the glory has departed. And, his, uh, and, he, and that was spoken when Ichabod was born, and when his mother was dying, um, and at the news of her husband's death. That would be Phineas' death, the son of Eli. So this is, this, is a, this is not a good picture for Saul. And just kind of, you need to stop and ask yourself. When, you're, when you wander from God, when you choose to reject God, what kind of people do you end up surrounding yourself with? You don't typically surround yourself with other people who are pursuing God. You actually find yourself surrounding yourself with other people who are on the outside of that, who may have the form of godliness but are not trying to pursue God. So it's really important when you have been disobedient, when you're struggling in your walk with God and you choose to disobey him, there's a tendency to, to identify yourself with other people that are 
in similar situations than you rather than saying, God, forgive me, and repenting of that sin and saying, I want godly people around me. It's just a sad reality. The glory had departed from Israel a few years back, and Saul, rather than humbling himself before God, has chosen to bring into his inner circle this man, Ahijah, and the glory of God was departing once again, we could say. There's no surprise that these details are in this text. And they point to the fact that Saul was rather quickly departing from the God who was departing from him. In other words, God said, I'm rejecting you, and there's a sense in which Saul is saying, well, if you're rejecting me, then I'm rejecting you too. He may not have come out and said that, but his actions are showing that. David Jobling notes it this way, his own royal glory gone, where else would, uh, would we expect Saul to be than with a relative of glory gone? Richard Phillips summarizes it this way, Saul having replaced the dynamic counsel of Samuel with the disgraced counsel of the house of Eli has lost his way uh, and is able to do little more than grasp at the tattered shreds of his lost credibility. Now you just see the comparison. Here's Jonathan saying, let's go get the Philistines. And you have Saul who's like, I'm hiding back here and I'm surrounding myself with people that are also rejected by God. It's quite a picture. It's quite a contrast. Now, a little lesson in topography is important here just to understand what's gonna happen next. So as we read on, verse four. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over the Philistine garrison, was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. So these two sharp rocky crags are on either side. One named Bozes, which means slippery. The other one named Sena, which means thorny. All right, so you can get the picture of what's going on here. There's this incredible um, crag, this incredible kind of uh, valley with these, sh- these sharp kind of uh, mountains and, 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 uh, and, and, and hills that are really insurmountable, insurpassable. And, and that's the point here. The, the, the narrator wants us to see how impossible it was, how ridiculous it was for, for, um, for Jonathan even to think about doing what he's thinking about doing. How can just two men take on a Philistine army, especially when they're entrenched in such a formidable fortification? And there are two reactions to these circumstances. The reaction of Saul, one is fear and retreat, and the reaction of Jonathan is one of faith. Whereas Saul, the commander, publicly dishonored the Lord through fear-inspired disobedience, Jonathan, the warrior, would bring honor to the Lord through his fearless faith. And so we're moving from this comparison now to say, okay, then what is it that's different about Jonathan? How is it that Jonathan, being in the same circumstance, under the same conditions, can be a man of incredible faith, whereas Saul is a man of fear and he's retreating? What marks that? I want to know that. Do you want to know that? I mean, is there a sense when you say, yeah, show me? And listen, the, I, the, the point here is not to say, we all need to be like Jonathan, The point here is to say, where does that faith come from? And when we understand where that faith comes from, then we understand how God then can work through us to be people of great faith in the context of great opposition. So what was it that pointed Jonathan's, or should I say painted Jonathan's heart with a different brush than his father Saul's heart? 
What was the heart of Jonathan's character that really made the difference under these circumstances? Was it courage? Well, certainly he was courageous, but that's not the point. It wasn't just that he kind of trumped up a whole bunch of courage. Was it the fact that he was kind of this, this warrior, he had an attitude of a warrior, I'm just gonna go out there and I'm gonna be this great warrior? No, was he just a reckless youth trying to stake his reputation? There may be some of that going on, but that's not the point. That's not really where his faith came from. There may be elements of these things going on, but we need to allow the text to tell us where his faith came from, and it does. It reveals to us that at the core, Jonathan was motivated by bold faith in the God of Israel. Let's think now at what I'm calling the heart of bold faith found in verse six. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan's circumstances were no different than his father Saul's circumstances. They were both under oppression from the Philistines. Their numbers were few, and only Saul and Jonathan had a weapon. So Jonathan's faith was not based on his circumstances, it wasn't based on his weapons, but his faith rose up above his circumstances and found its place in the God of Israel. And here's the logic of Jonathan's thinking for us as, as it's un, unfolding in verse six. But we're gonna actually work backwards because we're gonna see that, that the, the, the real root of his faith is at the end of verse six and it works its way back. So we'll begin by noticing this statement. First of all, notice this, what, what he says here. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That's a pretty packed statement. That's a pretty bold thing to say. But it is a statement of faith, and there are two parts to it. First, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Just think about that statement. Is there any circumstance in this world that can stop God from being the deliverer that he is? If God desires to deliver his people, guess what? He'll do it. That's the kind of God he is. And Jonathan here is wrapping his hands around that theological truth. So he has great expectation that God can save Israel if he so chooses. It is completely and totally in God's hand. There is nothing outside of God that is somehow hindering or preventing God from saving his people. And the friends, there's an important just point here to stop and just to ask ourselves, do we truly believe that God is all powerful? Or do we believe that somehow God is affected by what other people do in this world? He would be a diminished God if other people in this world somehow did things and God said, oh wow, now what do I need to do? They, they had that maneuver on me, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that. No, God knows exactly what's going on. He is fully aware of what he's doing and he is totally powerful to accomplish his purposes. The second thing is that he says nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Sometimes God works his plan through the many. Think of God giving over the land of Canaan through the conquest under the leader Joshua and his armies. 
I know Joshua was the one that went into the land. You know, he, he's the one who's the, the leader of the armies. But he, he used his massive armies to conquer places like Jericho and Hazor and other places like that. But not only does God work through the many, he often works through the few. And at this point in time in Israel's history, some of their most recent history, at least recorded history, would have been the judges. And the judges were individuals who were used by God to exercise God's power against people to deliver Israel from the hand of their oppressors. And so just think about Gideon, who was hiding in a wine press, but raised up an army of 32,000 that God whittled down to 300 warriors whom God used to defeat the mighty Midianite army and defeated them simply by surrounding them in the middle of the night, breaking the vessels and yelling, and the Midianites just ended up killing each other. Not necessarily how you would think you know, and strategize about beating a people group. But that was God's plan. But he did it by a few. Ehud. By the way, if you're looking for a good name for your child, here's one, okay? Ehud had personally worked his way into the Moabite king, Eglon, and killed his oppressor. Samson had defeated 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey and ultimately in his last act of faith pulled down the pillars of a temple killing the leaders of the Philistines. One man. God uses many at times. He also uses few. There's also Shamgar who defeated 600 Philistines with an ox goat. I'm just saying, that's part of, part of the, the history. I'm sure Jonathan was aware of some of these stories of Israel's history and these deliverers that, that had come and protected Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. So Jonathan was fully aware that God can, if he so chooses, deliver Israel from their enemies, either by a large army or just a few individuals. The size of God's agents of deliverance was not the issue. Only the power of God behind the many or the few. Now friends, that's really, really important. Because we are far more tempted to say that it's the many that is the way that things are gonna get done. We, we have a hard time actually believing that God can actually do anything incredible through me. And most of us live our lives in the mundane, right? I mean, we, we, we go to work, we raise our kids, we cook meals, we go to basketball games, and we watch Super Bowls, right? Our, our lives is pretty much in the mundane, and, the, and, and that's okay, because we're supposed to do that. How in the world can God work through me? Because he works through the mass, as far as the church, but he also works through the individual. And he wants the individuals, just as much as the church, to be a people of great faith, in the face of great opposition. And so here's the point then, great faith rests on great truth. And that great truth rests on great theology. Great faith rests on great truth. And that great truth rests on great theology. What we've seen so far in verse six is that Jonathan has good theology about who God is and how he does exercise his will. Now what is that theology? It is that God is a God of infinite power. And here are some examples from scripture that truth, uh, scripture presents throughout, 
<clears throat> sorry, here's some examples of that truth in scripture um, from a number of different places. Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What's the answer? Nope. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Okay. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Luke 137, for nothing will be impossible with God. About Matthew 19:26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The point here is that God is a God of infinite power. And when I reflect on God's dealings with Israel and his dealings with his church in the past, it reveals something about God's character that fuels my faith for my present circumstances. So when you're taking time to read your Bible, as you're going through these different stories, what you're looking for is you're looking for the character of God. You're looking for, to see him on display. You're looking to see how he interacts with man. In particular, how his attributes are on display. And when you see his character, that fuels you to live your life by faith in him. So if you're suddenly facing a trial or a season of great difficulty, you may struggle between two battling forces in your heart. The first one would be fear, looking at the circumstances for what they are. I mean, just think about it. When Jonathan looked over and saw the Philistines, what did he see? A lot of them. The circumstances were real, right? The rocky crags were real. And Saul saw the same thing. And you can retreat in fear, or the second one would be this, faith. Looking behind the circumstances for the God of the universe who is at work in and through all those circumstances. God is the God of infinite power and can deliver his children if that is his will. Which then moves now to the second statement that he makes as we move up in verse 6. The second thing that he says is this, it may be that the Lord will work for us. You see the progression here. It may be that the Lord will work for us. This is the balance that is needed as Jesus models it for us when he was suffering in the garden. Just think about this. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And he said, this is Jesus speaking, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. This is the cup of suffering. This is anticipating the cross. Yet... Not what I will, but what you will. So, let's step back a bit. Jonathan recognizes the character of God and that he works through the many or the few. Based on that now, next level, he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. It's not guaranteed. He's not saying he has to. But it may be. God may very well have created this circumstance so that he can bring glory to himself by how he delivers his people. Maybe God is up to something here. You see, faith stands on God's character but also moves according to God's will. 
Or to put it differently, true faith in God knows his power to do all things but submits to his will knowing that he is both wise and good. So when we believe who God is, that doesn't mean that God is always in every situation going to act exactly the same way. Are there times when Israel was under oppression where God did not deliver them? Yes. And other times when he does deliver them? Yes. And people may exercise faith in both of those situations. So great faith says, I know the character of God. But it also says, and maybe God is at work wanting to do something in this situation. In Jonathan's case, it's the phrase, it may be. Or maybe if you have a different translation, perhaps would be the word that balances his personal confidence with divine dependence. So you're confident in the character of God, but you're also dependent on the will of God being carried out. We need to always face our trials, confessing the power of God and retaining the freedom of God to do his will. This is not, however, a call to live a formulaic life. We don't just press buttons and say, well, this is who God is, and so he guarantees, and boom, boom, boom. That's formulaic living. But we just say, God, you are, you are all-powerful. You are all-knowing. You are desiring to do good among your children, and I'm gonna rest in that. And the trial that I'm facing right now is difficult. It is hard. I'm not exactly sure what to do, and I wanna exercise great faith, and I know that that, that there are times when you do incredible things, and so I'm gonna move with the reality that you can, and I'm gonna be obedient in such a way that I'm believing everything that you're telling me about my situation, and I'm willing to act on it. But he's ultimately the one who has to accomplish his will. And so I rest on whatever his will is. These principles and truths are fuel that enhance our excitement in serving God who knows what God might choose to do through my exercise of faith in him? Who knows? Now friends, it leads us to the third statement that he says to his armor bearer, come let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. See the character of God and the will of God work together to fuel the faith of God's child. So we say that Jonathan was a man of great faith. We're not just saying that there was just something in him that just made him special. No, that great faith was rooted in the character of God. But it also embraced the freedom of God to act according to his will. But it fuels his faith into action. This come let us go was not some personally conjured up bravado or machismo. This was action based on God's character and humility based on God's will. We'll soon encounter another young man who was willing to laugh at fate and exercise great faith in the face of overwhelming opposition. His name is David and he stood against a giant by the name of Goliath. Now is it any wonder that Jonathan and David 
are two peas in the same pod, so to speak. Great faith rests in a great God. So it is as if Jonathan is saying to his armor bearer something like this, God can do mighty works with very small resources and God may be glad to do it in this case and how can we know, friend, unless we place ourselves at his disposal? Now friends, this is the heart cry of any missionary movement that says, I know that God has taken the gospel to the nations and I know that he uses insignificant people. So let's go. (laughs) Who knows what he might do? See, this is one of the things that many people don't realize about some of the early pioneer missionaries. It wasn't so much that they had a burden to go to these places and, and, and preach the gospel and so win people to God as if they were the ones that were doing it. No, it was, you know what? God says he is going to take the gospel to the nations. We agree with that. And you know what? We want to be a part of that for his glory, so we're going to go, and we're just going to say, God, whatever you choose to do, use our wisdom, use our skills, but Lord, help us to be put in a place where your will can be accomplished and your gospel can go forward. Two different dynamics. One is saying God is the one who is sovereign, who's going to accomplish his purpose. The other one is saying, yeah, God's big, but he needs me. Big difference. That's what great faith says in the face of great opposition. Who knows what God will do? I'm sure you've heard the story of, we'll say missionary William Borden, but William Borden was um, the son of a very wealthy family. And uh, um, before he went off to college, he went on a a tour of the world, and while he was on that tour, um, he was... Uh, he was taken by the people that he saw and had a burden for them, for the, for the glory of God, a gospel burden. And he ended up going to Yale University. And while he was at Yale University in his freshman year, um, he and some friends together, because of their heart for God and their heart for mission, started these Bible studies. Um, by the time he was a senior, uh, uh, 1,000 of the 1,300 students that were attending Yale at that point in time were all involved in these small group Bible studies that were praying for missionary endeavor. And while he was at Yale, he, he determined a particular people group in the Chinese people that were Muslims that, that he believed that God was calling him to. And so um, after graduating from Yale, um, because he was from a wealthy home and he had a good education, he got lots of job offers at prestigious places to come. And he would have made lots of money in those contexts, but he's like, no, no, God's called me to missions. So he went from Yale to Princeton Seminary, went to Princeton Seminary, and when he was done with that, he got on a boat and he headed out toward China, but knowing if he was gonna go to China to work with the Muslims, he had to learn Arabic. And so in order to learn Arabic, he went to Egypt. So he lands in Egypt, he's there a month, and he gets sick, and ultimately is uh, has spinal meningitis, and he dies. William Borden never got to China, but he was a man of great faith. 25 years old, he dies. Now, during his spiritual journey, at different and difficult times, he wrote some statements in the back of his Bible. I'm sure you're aware of these when he had determined that God was calling him into missions early on in his time at Yale, he wrote back there, no reserves. 
he would have given himself fully in his heart to God's call for missions. Then after he graduated, because he was being tempted to these high paying jobs, he wrote down the back of his Bible, underneath no reserves, no retreats, saying, you know what, this is what God's called me to. Even with all this tempting uh, opportunities, I have a calling from you, God, and I'm going to seek to do that. And then a little before his death, in Egypt, knowing he was gonna die, he wrote underneath those two words, no reserves, no retreats, he wrote these words, no regrets. Now, how is it that he could say something like that? Borden's life was not a waste. It was a life of great faith in the face of great opposition. And that opposition came from different, different places, but hear this, it was born out of a knowledge of God's character and will and the thought that perhaps God might work through him. God didn't take William Borden to China, but his life and his legacy stirred up many to follow the same cause, to live their lives in total surrender and to do God's will, whatever it was, by faith. And Borden's great faith then was contagious. Other people caught it. You see, sometimes we think, oh, the end is what we're looking for, but the the means to get to the end for Borden was a spiritual journey that had great impact on those he was around and stirred up others to pursue and to have a heart for missions also. Great faith is not only courageous, it is also contagious. And Jonathan's great, bold faith is contagious too, as we'll see in his armor bearer, verse seven. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Now Jonathan, you know, turning to his armor bearer, said, hey listen, I'm gonna go up there and take it to the Philistines. You wanna come too? Most of us would say, Jonathan, I'll just watch from the other side of the, you know, the craggy rock here and see what happens. No, his armor bearer says, listen, I am with you, heart and soil. So he was, he was committed, he was, he was um, totally um, committed to what, what Jonathan was desiring to do. He was um, wholehearted in his commitment. He was loyal. Now friends, this is one reason why being the church is so important. It is why we don't neglect to gather together as the body of Christ. Life is full of great opposition. Do you agree with that? And we can encourage one another week by week to be people of great faith in the context of that great opposition. See, our our great faith is contagious. We look around this room, we think of people who have gone through difficulty this week, this past month, this past year. And we see what God is doing in their lives and we see how they're saying, God, give me strength, give me wisdom. It, it encourages the body then to do the same. So when we're facing trials and we're, we're, we're rising up, we're ready to rest in the character of God, we're ready to humble ourselves to his will and we're ready to take action by faith. And when we hear how others have exercised great faith in dealing with their troubles, we're too motivated to face similar struggles in the same way, whether it's 
marriage struggles or family struggles, whether it's disease or death or job loss or financial struggles or dealing with sin or facing consequences of sin, all of it requires great faith in a great God. My friends, this is the heart of where Jonathan finds the fuel for his great faith. Now let's move on to the story here, the plan for bold faith. It's a very, very simple plan, um, very straightforward. Notice the if-then construct that's going on here, verse eight. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over uh, to the men and we will show ourselves to them. Here we are, all right, and then we'll find out what happens next. This is what he says. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. Now let me just pause here for a second. When you're studying Old Testament narrative, that does not mean then the way that you deal with things is exactly the same way that they handle things, all right? I have heard of a guy who wanted to marry a girl he saw in college. And so what he did is he said, all right, I know what to do. I'm gonna follow biblical principle. And he found that girl. She didn't know this was going on. But he followed the example of Israel and the city of Jericho. So for seven days, he would walk around her one time. (laughs) On the seventh day, he marched around her, what, seven times, right? I don't know if he blew a trumpet or not, but no, that's not what God calls us to. The point here is not to follow exactly in detail the plans and the actions that are made here. And if we, if we do that, we find ourselves applying principles inappropriately. So what we wanna do here is we wanna see that what Jonathan is coming up with here is a plan that God uses, but it is not the plan specifically that we need to use to follow. Does that make sense? All right, the same thing happens with Gideon and his fleece. We don't you know, put a fleece out at night and say, okay, you know, get it wet. If it's not wet in the morning but everything else is, then why have your will? That was what happened with Gideon. It's not how we process our walk with God, okay? But we see these things as acts of faith. And here we have him saying, all right, here are the choices. We will come down to you or come up to us. That's what they're gonna say. And in Jonathan's thinking, the behavior of the Philistines would be a sign from God for him to act. Right? And so they followed the plan, verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. I don't think it was just kind of a casual, oh, look, there's some Hebrews, and they're coming out of the holes. No. I think they're, they're mocking. I think they're laughing. I think they you know, they're, feel like they're in total control. And then what does it say? And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. A pointed thing, likely. Okay. Uh, some translations say, you know, we'll teach you a thing or two. All right. All right. So this was not friendly discussion here. I mean, Jonathan's saying, listen, we're, we're, <laughs> we're revealing ourselves. We're putting ourselves in a vulnerable position here. But we have a plan. And if they say come up, we're going to go up. And so what happens? They say come up. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Get this, it's not Jonathan saying, my plan's working. What is he saying? The Lord 
has given them into the hand of Israel. This was all the sign that Jonathan needed to confirm the actions uh, that were soon to follow were actually God's will, that God was about to work his will on this day through a few rather than through many. And then we see the outcome of that plan. I'm sorry, I haven't put that up there. The outcome of that plan or that bold faith. And this is like something out of a James Bond movie when you think about it just hundreds of years earlier, then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. Just remember the kind of terrain that it was. I mean, this is pretty incredible stuff. Um, And his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike was Jonathan, his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men. So Jonathan catches the Philistines by surprise. As soon as he jumps in, gets over the the, the precipice into where they are, he starts hacking away and his armor bearer comes behind him and finishes the job. And and when it's all said and done, there are 20 Philistines that um, are killed here. Now you'd say, 20 Philistines, what's the big deal? It is the means by which God begins now to work his plan, might wanna say, in a drastic way among the Philistines. If we think that Jonathan is some kind of a Hebrew superhero, we have the wrong picture. Jonathan's outlandish and absurd uh, absurd tactics demonstrate that if there was victory that day, it could only be because the Lord had given them into Israel's hands. Now, we're gonna look now at this victorious faith. Two kind of results that take place here. The results as it relates to the Philistines and the results that, uh, that as it relates to the people of Israel, in particular Saul and his armies. Let's first of all notice routing the enemy, the Philistines. And we're just gonna let the text speak here just to see and make a few comments along the way, but there's some words that just rise out of this text. Look at verse 15. There was, there was a panic in the camp and in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. That word panic is actually all from the same root that has the idea of trembling. So these people were trembling because of what Jonathan did, and the result of it, they were all trembling. That's what we find in verse 15. Then in verse 16, the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah, Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Literally, that word dispersing means melting. So this is a great metaphor. The great and powerful Philistine army had turned to water and was running everywhere. And then in verse 16, it talks there about the multitude. The idea in verse 19, the word there is the, the tumult. In verse 20, it says uh, the, the, this expression, this very great confusion. And all three of those words, again, come from this root that has to do with confusion. So there was this great confusion that was taking place among the Philistines. There was this trembling. There was this melting going on. I mean, incredible picture here. And Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for for the ark of the Lord went... Uh, at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult 
There's that word again. In the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the, uh, to the priest, withdraw your hands. So there's this incredible confusion that's going on while they're watching the Philistine army. And then verse 22 says, likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed after them in the battle. Now just, just think about these words. You've got at least 36,000 Philistines in the area. And you got 600 Hebrews. You're not expecting to see words like this describe the condition of the Philistines. Why are they trembling? Why are they melting? Why are they so confused? Why are these 36,000 minus 20 Philistines fleeing from 600 soldiers? It's because Jonathan exercised great faith in a great God. And that great God has great power. Now let's turn our attention now to what happens to the Hebrews here. Kind of kind of overlap a little bit, but in verse 20, notice how they respond to all that has taken place. Then Saul and all the people who are with him rallied and went into battle. So the 600 rallied together and it says, behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow and there was very great confusion. So the Philistines were killing one another. And Saul rallied then the soldiers that were there, but it doesn't stop there because you continue reading. Verse 21, there's kind of like this, this moving crescendo here. Verse 21, now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So those that had been taken captive, those who were with the Philistines turned now and became part of this army that chased down the Philistines. So the army was now getting bigger. All right? So there was this motivation that was taking place as a result of all that was being seen. And then verse 22, likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. You see what's going on here? There is this motivation, there is this rallying, there is this encouragement. I'm gonna give you another couple of words. There is this uniting now of the armies to pursue the Philistines. And ultimately there was some leadership going on to chase them down. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Bethaven. Here's the summary statement then of what we looked at so far. Great opposition demands great faith that is rooted in Israel's great God. Great opposition demands great faith that is rooted in Israel's great God. Look at verse 23. Powerful So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Bethaven. It's no small statement, is it? Now, we want to take some time with our concluding thoughts here. And what we're going to do here is reiterate some of the principles that we teased out from this passage that really are screaming at us by means of what we are to do and how we are to apply them or how we are to lean into them in in our trust of God and his purposes. So let's just begin by reminding ourselves of some of these 
truths, right? Number one, great faith is rooted in the character of our great God. Which of course then begs the question, answer being, you need to get to know God, right? If, if great faith is rooted in the character of God, then it would be wise for us to say that I need to do all I can to get to know the character of God. So when you're reading God's word, you're looking for statements and examples of his character. You're growing purposely in your understanding of his attributes, his immutability, his kindness, his grace, his love, his mercy, his wrath, his justice, his holiness, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience. And if I've just listed off some words that you don't know what I'm talking about, all the more encouragement to say, learn the attributes of God, okay? Pick up a book, and I'm just gonna give you two books that I think are helpful on this subject. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Uh, the Attributes of God by Arthur Pink. I personally like The Attributes of God by Arthur Pink. I think it's, it's riveting, I think he's, he says a lot in a concise way, but the point here is this. Meditating on the character of God is important for us to know who God is and to understand what that character or those attributes mean and how they interact with us, how they intersect with our living. So our pursuit, friends, every time we're, we're, we're seated under the word of God, every time we're opening the word of God, we're asking ourselves, God, what are you teaching me about your character? Because I need to know that. I need to understand that. You see, when we get God's attributes wrong, we become very susceptible to false teaching. And the last thing you want going into great distress and opposition is a distorted or erroneous view of God. So saying that positively, we depend on a right understanding of God and his character when we face trials. We rest in his attributes, we find strength and clarity in them and they fuel us to face our difficulties with a confident faith. I can't stress it enough, friends. Just start just building on your awareness of the attributes of God. Secondly, great faith is both courageous and contagious. Great faith is both courageous and contagious. As, as a pastor, I have had the privilege to minister to individuals and families during some of the darkest seasons of life helping families go through the death of a loved one, both young and old, helping couples struggle through financial distress or marital disharmony, helping individuals face life-changing disease or enduring physical conditions that they must deal with the rest of their lives. And I can honestly say that the courage I see in people who have a healthy grasp of God's character is both encouraging and contagious. When I see God's people facing those difficulties, holding on to the character of God, it just compels me to do the same. I just wanna say, God, I want to know you more. I wanna, I wanna understand and grasp who you are and rest in that because I may not be going through some time of great opposition or, or distress, but I, I want to be ready to do that and I know that, that, that pursuing you is the way to get there and this great encouragement, this great courage from those who are going through difficult trials who have a grasp of the character of God is so very 
contagious. And so many times I see people who know God and trust God and they are grinding out their faith, holding on to the wheel of God's attributes. And by, when I say grinding out their faith, you know, the, the trials that God has for us are not always enjoyable, are they? But we grind them out. We say, God, I'm going through this and I'm holding on to the wheel of who you are. And I'm saying, God, just help me to see, help me to, to navigate, help me to, to follow your will, but resting in the reality of who you are and give me, give me that confidence, give me that courage. But so many times when I see that, it is contagious. And I think you probably say the same thing. As you see God's people struggle, but hold on to God, you are encouraged and it is contagious. The third thing then, great faith believes that God works through the many and the few. There's naturally a greater comfort in the many, isn't there? That's another reason why being a part of a church, a local church, a physical church, is a critical part of growth in Christ. We, we need the many, we need the body to, to help us, we need the body, and we find comfort and safety in that many. The onslaughts of the enemy are many, but can be faced with greater strength when we join together as a body. But the many is not just about comfort, it's about mobilizing a spiritual army to help spread the gospel or the spreading of the gospel. And friends, that's ultimately what we're trying to do in our ministry in Bolivia. There's a sense of, of many here that we're, we're trying to say, God, we, we know that you're a great God and you want your gospel to spread in that Santa Cruz area of Bolivia and we're willing to be used by you to do that so who knows, maybe our little church can make a difference for the glory of God. See, God uses the many, he also uses the few. And then number four here, God, great faith is risky yet balanced by God's sovereignty. Jonathan said, let's go over X, Y, Z, and perhaps, who knows? I think one of the places where we need to be reminded of our need to exercise great faith is in the arena of evangelism. I sense this in myself, and I, I see it in the church today. We're afraid to open our mouths. We're preoccupied with good things, even ministry. Or we're confident that God, because of his, he is sovereign, is bringing the elect to himself, and that's a good thing. But so often we just rest in that knowledge rather than say to ourselves, God is at work in this world drawing people to himself, and he is doing that through the many and the few, so perhaps he wants to take action through me. And maybe we need to be saying to ourselves, so let's go over to XYZ. Perhaps God will do something. So perhaps if you invite your neighbors over for a meal, you might have the opportunity to share the gospel. They might even start asking you questions about what you believe. Who knows? Perhaps. Perhaps that coworker who is going through that difficult family trial, if you say, hey, listen, can I pray for you? Perhaps. That will be a means by which, an open door by which you can now share the gospel. Perhaps, you don't know, unless you ask. Perhaps that friend in school or your friend on that team would open up to you and let you know the kind of struggles they're facing. Perhaps they'd be willing to listen to what you have to say. 
perhaps, who knows. In our reading for this week, following the um, Gresham Machen reading, um, found ourselves in the book of Esther. And I was meditating on our text today and I was thinking about what I was reading in Esther. In Esther chapter four, verse 14, there is this critical moment where Mordecai approaches Esther and challenges her in her position as queen and in the, the, the trial that she was gonna have to kind of go through in presenting herself before the king, which was a perilous thing to do if you're not invited to do that. And here's what he says in verse 14 of Esther 4. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews because there had been a decree that all the Jews then would be, would be killed. So for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, we we don't know, but what we do know is the character of God. And we do know that he calls us to live our lives according to his will, but his will is his will. I can't guarantee it but I know that he will accomplish his will through my efforts to bring him glory. So we step out a little bit and we're, we're risky. We stick our necks out, uncertain of exactly what might happen next, but who knows what God might do. But then again, maybe he won't, and that's okay. At least I've been a person who's exercised faith in him. See, he's the one that is to be glorified. He is the one that is drawing people to himself. He is the one that is working through the things that I'm even conjuring up in my mind. Who knows? Are we willing to be risky, yet balanced in our great faith? And friends, I just wanna draw you now to this, this final point that takes us to the place of most importance, and that is this. The best example of great faith is found in Jesus Christ himself. We saw this already a little bit as I read Jesus in the garden. Here's what he says. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. See, that's an understanding of the character of the Father. And Jesus, in his, in his humility on earth, was submitting to the will of the Father. So he knows the character of the Godhead. But he says, you can, re- you can remove this cup from, from me, That was the cup of suffering, but then he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. So this is balance now, the character of God with the will of of God working together here to say, this is where I have to go, and this is part of God's ultimate plan, the, the Godhead's plan. Then the writer of Hebrews says it this way, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's referring back to the examples of chapter 11, the, we call it the hall of, of faith, all these examples of faith, since we're, we have this, this, this testimony witness that we've just listened to, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, the greatest example we have of exercising faith is Jesus himself. 
he went to the cross, trusting in the plan of the Father, of the Godhead, and did that in such a way, knowing that it was the will of the Father, it was the joy that he had come to do. And as we celebrate the Lord's table, in just a couple of minutes here, we're celebrating what he accomplished as he went to that cross, as he humbled himself, as he gave his body, as he shed his blood, as the means by which he would be that sacrifice once for all. And we who have put our faith and trust in him can rest in the cleansing power of that blood that saves us from our sin and brings us into this family of God to be with him forever. Lord, help us today to consider what it means to be a people of great faith. And Lord, the goal there is not to be like Jonathan. The goal is to see you, to be amazed with who you are, to understand your character, to understand that you are a great and powerful God and that we can trust in that. And Lord, we can then begin to live our lives based on that in practical ways, Lord, trusting you. Lord, now as we transition a little bit and we think about your son, Jesus Christ, who, who endured so much so that we would not be faithless people, that we wouldn't be faint-hearted, that we would give up, Lord. He has been an example for us. And Lord, may we, as we celebrate the Lord's table, be reminded not just as the example of Christ, but Lord, the suffering of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ and the accomplished shedding of blood and the payment that was made on that cross. May we remember that. May we praise you, Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's table together in your name. Amen.